Good evening, everyone. It's good to be back in Tampa, Florida. We were up in uh, Pennsylvania and Virginia last week. It was gray and misty and cold the whole time, and it's May. So it's good to be back in tropical weather. I'm not just saying this because it sounds like the right thing to say or uh, to make you sound like I'm, like I'm humble, but uh, I am doing seminary now, and it really did just teach me how weak I am. And I, I see that every week when I get to passages like the passage we're going to learn tonight and the grand theological themes that are in it and how important these passages are. And I really, I really can't do them justice. I promise you I can't. And seminary truly has humbled me in that way. And again, I'm not just saying it to sound uh, like I'm humble or sound like it's the right thing to say, but I truly do believe that. So I do pray that the Holy Spirit will help all of us. I pray the Holy Spirit will help me with the words to say and the power for you to apply it to your hearts. Philippians 3, 1 to 11. The main point that this passage confronts us with is that we are to resist all threats to the gospel of grace. We resist all threats to the gospel of grace. It's true that there is always someone trying to cheapen, change, soften, improve, restrict the gospel of grace. Always someone trying to do that. The passage tonight is going to call us to stand together as watchmen so we can see when these attacks are coming. We have to resist these attacks because they are attacks on the very foundation of this unity we've been talking about the whole basis of the unity of the church that Paul has been getting at. These threats are threats on the foundation that hold that unity together, the very gospel of grace. And they're constant attacks that we have to be on guard of. There's two that are probably the biggest, the two biggest threats to the gospel today and in Paul's day, just in different forms, are legalism and licentiousness. Licentiousness, we've already talked about it, but it's thinking that you can indulge in whatever you want to indulge in without fear of consequences before God. That's licentiousness. Legalism is thinking that what you do or who you inherently are before Christ is going to make you right with God. That's legalism. What you do, your performance is going to make you right with God. Paul already dealt with licentiousness in chapter 2, I believe, when he says to work out, our fear with, uh, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, saying you guys need to get to work. Don't just sit down around, don't sit around and do nothing. You need to actually get busy working out your salvation with fear and trembling. So it's no time to be lazy, no time for licentiousness, time to get to work. So I believe he deals with that there. But now in chapter 3, he's turning the chapter, turning the page, and he's going to be dealing with legalism as a threat to the gospel of grace. He's going to deal with legalism now because he knows that just like a licentiousness, legalism too will send people to hell. We just came out of the main exhortation section of the letter. He's told them to be unified in the gospel. He's emphasized that they have to have unity and that unity is only going to come through humility and it's all driving at the purpose of a joyful gospel partnership. That's what he's been driving home up to this chapter. And last time we met, we talked about two exemplary gospel partners. Remember Epaphroditus and Timothy, those two people that Paul trusted his life with, 
trusted to send back to the Philippians to take care of their needs, people that we can imitate. And we saw how their love and their loyalty flowed out of their humility. They were reliable, exemplary gospel partners. So at this point, up to this chapter, he's told them to be on guard against internal threats to the gospel, internal threats to unity in the church, things that could happen inside the body of Christ. Be on guard for those things. Be unified. Tonight, in chapter 3, he's moving on to a section that talks about external attacks on the gospel of grace, things that are happening from the outside, people who are coming in and teaching other things rather than the gospel of grace, threats to biblical unity in the church. Again, this external threat here is legalism. Verse 2, if you look at it, it says, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. If you remember in chapter 1, he put up with some people, didn't he? Paul did. He put up with people who were preaching Christ out of selfish motives. Do you remember that section? He said, well, either way, whether they're doing it from selfishness or whether they're doing it for Christ, either way, Christ is being preached. Christ is being exalted. So in this, I rejoice. He put up with those people. But he has absolutely no time for these people. No time whatsoever for these people he's mentioning now in chapter 3. He's calling them dogs. He's calling them evil workers. You don't call someone a dog and an evil worker unless you have a very good reason for it. True? True. These are dogs. These are vicious people who want to tear the church apart. They want to bring in their own teaching. They want to add to the gospel. They want to make the gospel something that they contribute to. And they want the Philippians to believe in this. Paul knows they're coming. And Paul is now warning the Philippians. These were just like the people I believe in Acts 15. Acts 15.1, you don't have to turn there right now, but some men came down, it says in Acts 15, some, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. This is what they were saying. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can what? You, you cannot be saved. Unless you're circumcised, unless you're keeping the law, just like Moses said, you cannot be saved. These are the Judaizers, people who are adding to the gospel. Paul calls them the false circumcision. Another good word to translate this with, really in Greek it's just one word, it means to chop. That's why some translations might put it as the mutilation. You might wonder, um, if you have boys, if some of these people work in pe uh, pediatrics offices now, but that's a different story. Um, some people might think that's funny, other people won't. The point is, however, that they had removed any meaning from circumcision. They removed all meaning from it. To them, it was just cutting away. It was a butcher shop. That's what they were, saying, let's get these people circumcised. Let's factor them through. Let's butcher them. They had removed all meaning from it, and then put it all on performance, all on works. So false teachers will come. But even if they don't affect us directly, we still have to deal with our own hearts. We have to be humble enough to admit that we can deceive ourselves into thinking that God must love us just because there's something lovely inside of us. So if it's not the false teachers, it's our own heart that we have to deal with. So as false teachers and our own fickle hearts attack the gospel of grace, Paul tells us that we have to remember two realities that mark every true believer. And remembering these two realities, they're going to build a high fence around us they're going to keep us safe from these dogs. And that's going to be by remembering that we're spiritually bankrupt before Christ. And that in Christ, we are wealthy. 
remembering that we're spiritually bankrupt before Christ, but also remembering that we're wealthy in Christ. So Paul's changing his metaphor here from dogs to money terms, but it's okay. He's doing this for a reason. But before we look at those two points, let's look up what uh, led to those. So what does Paul mean by finally? You see, who has finally in their translation? Probably all of you. Uh, there was a little boy, reportedly, who sat next to his dad in a church service, and he said, hey, Dad, what, is, what does the pastor mean when he says finally? His dad said, nothing. So is that what Paul is getting at here? I'd say, I'd say no. A better translation would just be, now for the rest, or now for the rest of the things I have to say, for the remaining matters, okay? Finally is a, mis, a misleading word. He's turning a chapter, though, and he wants to drive home an important point, and we'll see this. And a note on safety. When I was a little boy, uh, when I first rode on a plane, whenever I saw the instructions for how to do the seatbelts and the, all the uh, safety gear in the plane, and I was glued to the stewardess or whoever's giving instruction, I thought, this is a matter of life and death. I have to pay attention to this. And I, one thing I noticed, even as a little boy, I'd look around and people weren't really paying attention. Like, don't these people know how important this is? This is a matter of life and death. But over time, I you know, got over that, and now I don't really pay attention to them either. But the point, the point of all this is, Paul is saying, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again to you, it's not trouble at all for me. No big deal for me. And for you, it's a safeguard. It's something that is going to keep you safe. He's, he's making a special point right here to saying, don't check out. I know you've heard me say these same things. I've already said them in the same letter. You've already heard me say these things in person, but now I'm going to say a little bit more of what I've already said, talking about joy in the Lord, talking about being safe from your opponents. Some people argue about, okay, is the same things, writing the same things, is that just talking about joy, or is that just talking about your opponents? I'd say it's both, because he's talking about both again, okay? I was writing the same things. He's saying rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is not trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. So he's saying, I've already told you several times to have joy. I've already told you how to handle people who oppose you. And now I have some other important things to say along the same lines. We have enemies, and we have to face them with joy in the Lord. Matthew Henry, an old commentator, said this. The joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies. Listen to this phrase. This is a great phrase and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with, with which the tempter baits his hooks. In other words, we have enemies. They're going to be baiting the hooks. They're going to try to make it look good for us to move away from the gospel of grace. But we're going to know the gospel of grace, and we're not going to have any desire for the way they're baiting their hooks. We're not going to care about it. The joy of the Lord will guard us against that. So for Paul to say this, hey, it's not trouble to me, and it's going to be great for you to hear this over and over and over again. So first, as we resist threats on the gospel of grace, we remember that we were spiritually bankrupt. Anyone ever uh, wrote a check? You don't have to answer out loud. Wrote a check or maybe swiped your debit card? Yes. And there's nothing in the checking account? We've all had that experience. At least it didn't happen in college, right? Okay. So this is what's happening here. If you take a step further, though, okay, there's no money in checking, and there's nothing in savings, and there's no money in any account that you have, and you don't have any assets, and you're left out on the streets, spiritually bankrupt. That's what Paul's getting at. This is how our hearts are apart of, from Christ, before Christ. So before Christ, we're spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing to offer him 
based on our own merit. So now we see the contrast between the dogs and the true believers in verse 3. In verse 3, Paul says, we are the true circumcision. Or literally, we're just the circumcision. You guys are the choppers. We are the circumcision. That's the contrast. We worship in the spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. We put no confidence in the flesh. And that's how Paul makes the difference between the two groups. You don't have to turn there either, but Colossians 2.11 says that in Christ, you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We are the circumcision. And no, it's not talking about baby baptizing. That's where they get it from, though. But anyway, we serve. We do serve. We do worship. But it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit. We do boast. We do brag. But it's only in Jesus Christ. We do have confidence. We do have confidence and courage as believers, but it's not in ourselves. The false teachers, they don't want it this way. They want to have a share in the matter. They want to have something to contribute to the gospel. They want to have some kind of credit. And if we're honest with ourselves, we naturally do the same thing. We want to have something we could say, yes, I did at least this part. But Paul's saying that's not what we're getting at. We're completely the opposite of the false teachers. We are basing it completely on the work of Christ. We're spiritually bankrupt before Christ. We had nothing to offer before Christ. So I do believe that we fall into legalism when we have way too a high view of self. We fall into legalism when we live with the illusion that our own character, our own achievements, can somehow leave God with no choice but to look down in this rotten world and say, oh, wow, that guy really, he made himself pure. That's how we think. But God is not obligated to think that way. When he looks down at us, he sees a, a bunch of spiritually bankrupt people. So Paul's point is this as he's moving into verses 4 through 7. Using human standards, if personal achievements, if personal works, if your personal resume, if that can make you right with God, then Paul would have been first in line. You know, they say if, if looks could kill, well, if works could save, Paul would have been saved by his works, and we all would have been at the back of the line behind him. So whoever uses careerbuilders.com or ever tried it, did it ever get you anywhere? Hey, hey Luke did. Synagoguejobs.com, that's what Paul used. He had his resume on there, and he got all kinds of hits on his resume all the time. Boom, boom, boom. He was declining jobs left and right because this is his resume. This is his resume in a Jewish society, and it would have looked really good to synagogue leaders, to Pharisees, to people of his, in his religious day in the Jewish system. This was an extremely amazing resume that Paul had. Let's read it. He says, we don't put any confidence in the flesh, verse 3, but verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, verse 5, circumcised the eighth day. I'm of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gain to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. These verses remind us of two things. We fight legalism in our heart. We fight legalism in our church against false teachers when we don't rely on our national or religious heritage. In verse 5, so before Christ, Paul relied on all these heritages and these, these privileges that he had to make him right with God. This first set are those privileges that he gained from birth. 
things that he had naturally. These are things that he thought were gains. He was circumcised on the eighth day. This would have been the most basic, the first step in Jewish life, an acceptance, doing the right thing, doing according to the standards, being circumcised on the eighth day, the most basic thing. Did Paul have it? Check mark. Yes. He was also from the nation of Israel. Okay. Uh, Acts 26, verse 4. You don't have to turn there either. But Paul said this of himself. So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. So Paul's hardcore an Israelite. Okay. He was also number three from the tribe of Benjamin, a significant tribe. Would have been a very noble tribe of Israel. Saul, Israel's first king, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. Mordecai was from the book of Esther. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin remained faithful when other tribes didn't. So he can say, I have a lot of pride, a lot of prestige, because I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Number four, he was a purebred Hebrew. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrew parents. I didn't have a, I'm not mixed, a Hebrew of Hebrew parents. He wasn't like those who were converted to Judaism later on either, who kind of came in, stepped into the culture, and adopted some of the customs later on in life. No, Paul started that way. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Hebrew's Hebrew. Hebrew national. Never mind. Um, so, as we move on to this next thing, most of us don't consider our religious heritage to be of a lot of value, do we? Who considers your religious heritage something as significant as Paul did? Unless you maybe you grew up in a Jewish system or maybe in a Roman Catholic system, something like that. Maybe you don't put a whole lot of stock in that. But I believe this next point we all struggle with. It's relying on our own personal achievements. These are the achievements that Paul gained by hard work. So the ones we looked at are things that he was born with, things that he inherited. Now these are the sets on his resume that he worked hard for. He was a Pharisee. A Pharisee. Acts 26, verse 5, he said of himself, I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And by the way, the Pharisees, they didn't start out bad. When we get to the Gospels, these guys were just ruthless. They laid heavy burdens on people, and Jesus called them out left and right. But they didn't start that way. They started out when people didn't care much about obeying God. They were very strict in observing and obeying the Old Testament law. The problem started when they started looking around and saying, Wow, we're doing it, and everyone else is not. And they let that pride feed themselves day by day, day by day, until they got to the people they were in Jesus' day, whenever they were hypocrites, they were blind guides, people who were tying heavy burdens around people's necks, not letting them get into the kingdom of God. They didn't start that way. But this is Paul, strict Pharisee. Notice also, this is what he gained by hard work. This is something else he thought was a gain. He was a persecutor of the church. And if you really think about these words from the book of Acts, they make you shudder. Acts 8, verse 3, Paul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He put them in prison. Acts 26, 9 through 11, Paul says this, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authorities from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. 
being furiously enraged at them. I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. This is the Apostle Paul before his conversion. And this is something he thought was a game. Galatians 1, 13. For you have heard of, heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. Paul was so deeply devoted to Judaism that he would imprison, kill as many followers of Jesus as he could. And he thought all of this was a gain. He thought all of this was great on his resume. And for a Jewish society, this was great for his resume. And notice also, this is what he also worked hard for. He obeyed the Old Testament law strictly. He said, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, I was blameless. Blameless. Looking through all the law, he said, I'm good. And I think he was good compared with all the people around him. They looked at Paul and said, I can't get Paul on anything. He's got it all right. He's blameless when we look at him. Now, we do know from God's standpoint that from the law, no one is justified. No one is blameless. But from human standpoint, from a human standpoint, Paul was found blameless according to the law. We had a yard sale yesterday, right? How many people came through? I'd say a couple hundred maybe. I'm not really sure. Lots of people. They were all coming here to pay money for things that other people were about to throw away. <laughs> and you think, why don't they come in here for preaching and for worship? But, it, but that's another story. But as I thought about that yesterday, that's a perfect illustration of what our own hearts do. We go to worthless things, don't we? We go to things like things that people are about to throw away, and we pay money for it, and we flock to these kind of things. We hold all these things as dear to ourselves. We hold all these things as gain. We need to start thinking differently about what we value in our life. We need to start thinking about what we value in our relationship with God. And this is why verse 7 is so important. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So he has his resume all written out, all the things that he gained from birth, all the things that he worked so hard for. And he's saying, all those things I was placing all my stock in, all those things are, I'm going to consider as loss. They're worthless for the sake of gaining Christ. And again, loss and gain, those are both financial terms. And now he's applying these to his spiritual life. Paul thought he had it all. Paul thought that he had everything he needed to please God, everything that he needed to make himself look like he was doing the right thing, look like he was good in God's sight. But he wasn't. All those advantages that he thought were advantages were actually disadvantages. God opened his eyes to see that all those things were rubbish. Things were trash. That word is not a cuss word, back, by the way, in old times. I know people use that word to say, oh, yeah, people cussed back then, or Paul cussed. That's not true, okay? It's just a harsh word saying it's just trash, something that's not worth anything, something we're going to throw away. So Paul was ready to give up all these privileges and hard work. He was eager to call all these privileges, his heritage, his good works, and consider them like trash because putting his trust in those things prevented him from gaining Christ. So how do we do this? How do we remember that we're spiritually bankrupt without Christ? I don't think the air is working at all anymore. We put no confidence in the flesh. We put on humility. It takes a great deal of humility to say everything we worked for, everything we strove for, is worth nothing 
Think of all the accomplishments that you've made in your life. Think of all the things you've worked so hard for. You spent all your time and energy on those things, and now you're going to turn around and say, those are all worth nothing, all worth trash for the sake of gaining Christ. It's going to take a great deal of humility to do that. We also need to meditate on our weakness and meditate on our inability. Just let it sink in how frail we truly are, because we are. There's one five-year-old from this church who said, we're just the sticks that are on the vine. It's like, that's a really good way of putting it. That's how Jesus would put it. Tonight, consider writing a list. Think, consider getting a pen and paper, writing a list of all those things you spent all your time and energy on, all the things that you might consider making you think that, okay, I'm good. I'm good with God, or I have the right status. People view me the right way because I've done this, this, this and that. Write them all down. I encourage you to do that. After that, I'm not saying you have to burn it or throw it into a campfire. You can do that if you want. But consider that and compare them then to Paul's achievements and say, wow, I don't even measure up to Paul. And then consider, what did Paul do with his achievements? He considered them as trash to gain Christ. Consider doing that tonight. But we don't stop there. All of this is truly worth it. You say, I put so much time and energy into these things. Why could I consider them trash? All of this is truly worth it when we remember that we're wealthy in Christ, truly wealthy in Christ Jesus. Let's read verses 8 through 11. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may, there's the word again, gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Remember that you're wealthy in Christ. And this will make you okay with your bankrupt status before God, even if you put so much work and effort into it. It's going to be okay, because all your wealth is found in Christ, not in the things that you've worked for so hard yourself. So putting our stock on our performance blinds us to the wealth that we have in Christ. Now we turn to consider the wealth that we do have in Jesus. So how is Christ gained? How is he better? What's the wealth that we have in him? I do believe this passage teaches us that we have three gains, three gains in Christ that demolish the threat of legalism. Again, we're trying to dismantle legalism in the church. We're trying to realize that legalism isn't going to get us anywhere, and it's the enemy to unity in the church dismantling this. Remember that we're bankrupt. Now remember that we're wealthy in Christ. And what wealth do we have in him? I believe we have justification, this passage says in verse 9. Justification. It's God declaring us righteous on the ground of Christ's death, Christ's burial, his resurrection, his ascension. In other words, we're declared righteous based on Christ's work. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. You know these truths, but we have to be reminded. We're justified in Christ. It doesn't come from ourselves. He says, it's not having a righteousness of my own. Do you remember the Pharisee in Luke 18? He was praying. He said, wow, he's supposed to be righteous in myself and in himself. And he looked at other people and said, wow, these guys aren't cutting it. And then the other guy praying, saying, I just need mercy. I just need mercy. But he over here, the Pharisee, just saying, I'm okay on my own. That's not the point Paul's getting at. He's saying, I don't have a righteousness of my own. 
and it doesn't come from the law. It says, not having a righteousness of my own, and the key words, derived from the law. In Galatians 2, Paul also said, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died what? Needlessly. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ had no reason to die. He could have stayed right up in heaven and let us do all the work because we could have been justified by our works. But that was not an option for us. So Christ came down and died for us because righteousness does not come from the law. And it comes from God through faith in Christ. It's an alien righteousness. And your kids know it's not from a UFO, all right? It's not a righteousness that comes flying in from outer space and it's given to us. It's from Christ. It's something that's not from ourselves. It's from Christ. Paul says, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's why I love the hymn, The Solid Rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. So it all boils down to taking what Christ offers by faith. And there's rest there, isn't there? We rest from our work. We say, I'm just going to have faith in Christ. And if there's kids in the room, especially listen to this, you don't have to work for it. You just believe Christ. You take him at his word. You trust him. You trust that his work is good enough for you. And you don't have to work hard enough. You don't have to prove to everyone in the church that you're a good little Christian. You just take Christ's word by faith, and he'll save you. So remembering that God is the one who justifies us also helps us avoid the trap of legalism. Notice also that in Christ we have sanctification. Paul doesn't give a full explanation of sanctification here, but he does emphasize some very important aspects of it. Everyone's favorite theologian, Grudem, Wayne Grudem said, Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. So this is living with Christ in our everyday lives. Not the very beginning of our salvation, that's justification, but living every day in communion with God becoming more and more set apart, becoming more and more holy, becoming more and more like Christ in our lives. So what's it involve here? What are some of the aspects of sanctification that Paul says here? He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. He says, first, that we just want to know Christ. And the word know is important. Again, we've said this a billion times in our church, Knowing the Bible is usually not just learning some, some facts and some trivia about Jesus. Knowing is a relationship. Just like all the marriage relationships in the Bible and the Old Testament, talking about so-and-so know, knew his wife and they bore a son, you know that's more than just facts, okay? This is a relationship. We want to know Christ. And he's giving all this up, giving up all his achievements so he can know Christ. Do you know him in that way? He also wants to know the power of his resurrection. I'm, I am truly convinced that we take this for granted in our lives all the time, that Christ truly was resurrected and what his resurrection means for us, that he's given us new life now and that we are one day looking for a resurrection of our bodies, and we'll mention that in a moment. But this is what Jesus was saying in John 11. He said, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's what Jesus says. The resurrection. So do you know the power of his resurrection? Do you know Christ? Do you know the power of his resurrection? Do you know the fellowship of his sufferings? 
This word fellowship is the same word we've been using all along. This word for partnership. This word for partnering in the gospel. It's a fellowship. And we've already talked a good deal about suffering. Suffering with Christ. Suffering the same way Christ did. Suffering like Timothy and Paul did for the sake of Christ. It's a fellowship. This is a partnership. When you're signing up to be a believer, you're signing up to suffer. We saw it in chapter 1, verse 29. For to you it has been granted not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So this fellowship means that we're not suffering alone. It's a fellowship of suffering where we're suffering with Christ, we're suffering with our partners in the gospel, or the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. 1 Corinthians 1.5, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, you say, well, that's bad, but so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So do you know the fellowship of his sufferings? Remembering that God is ultimately the one who sanctifies us now. So he justifies us, he sanctifies us, knowing that we have this wealth in Christ, it's going to help us fight these threats of legalism. We have no time for legalism if we meditate on these truths, meditate on the truth of his justification and sanctification. We also have, in Christ, glorification. In verse 11, he says he's doing all this with the, this end goal, this ultimate goal, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Glorification is that final step in our salvation in the end times in which Christ is going to transform our frail bodies into conformity with his glorious body. And again, this is how Christ's resurrection changes everything. Because again, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, we're of all men to be most pitied. Philippians 3, we'll get to this in a couple weeks. Paul says, our citizenship, looking forward, is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. We're looking forward to glorification. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. We're looking forward to this glorification. Do we live every day like this? Do we live every day with these truths in our minds? Do we live every day knowing that we're truly wealthy in Christ, knowing that he's saved us, knowing that he's declared us right before him just by faith, just by trusting him, by believing him? And do we know that he's making us holy day by day? And do we know that we're looking forward one day for glorification? If we consider these things, we're constantly meditating on these things. And I know it's difficult. I do know it's difficult. We get caught up in all the mundane things of life caught up in our schedules, get caught up in the little things that are happening, and they take up a lot of time. And we don't think about these theological truths. But these are the truths that are the core of the Christian life. And we have to be considering them every day to give us hope, to help us fight legalism, to help us fight licentiousness, all these things. Remembering our wealth in Christ. Remembering that he's the one that is going to glorify us, he's going to help us resist these threats. These are the gains that we have in Christ. He justifies us, sanctifies us, glorifies us. And we can have hope in that. So what about our response? How do we respond to all these things? We could say lots of things now at the end of this passage. Tons of different things. But here's the four things that I thought of that I want to submit to you. Things that we need to take home with us. I want us all to be experts in the gospel of grace. I want us to all be experts in knowing the true gospel. And what I'm getting at here is this. I don't think we should dedicate our lives to studying every heresy that comes out. 
I know that's a tendency for all of us to do because we want to be ready, and we should be ready. But we can't dedicate our whole lives to that because it's going to make us cynical, it's going to remove our joy, and we're always going to be miserable focusing on those things. So let's first be experts in the gospel of grace. Be experts there, and then we can see the heresies when they come. And this will give us joy, meditating on the gospel. Let's do that first. Second, don't battle legalism with laziness. We just told you how to battle legalism. It's by remembering that you're spiritually bankrupt and by remembering that you're wealthy in Christ. That's how you battle it, by remembering those truths and putting them in action. You don't battle them with laziness. I say that for a reason. People call obedience legalism now. They say, okay, if you're obeying Christ in tangible ways, and then you're maybe putting pressure on other people to do that or calling people to repentance or calling people to follow Christ in obedience, and that's legalism. Following Christ isn't legalism. Obeying Christ as our master because we're his slaves, that's just living the Christian life. That's not legalism. So don't battle legalism with laziness by saying, okay, I'm just going to sit around and do nothing now because I don't want to be legalistic. That's not what Paul's getting at. He's already told us to get to work. Number three, we have to stop trying to atone for our own sins. Who does this? Maybe I have to explain what I mean first. I think sometimes that if I just feel bad enough, if I just stir up enough emotion because I sinned against my Lord, then he'll smile on me. If I can just stir up the emotion, if I can just beat myself enough, then God's going to forgive me. This is not how it works. We cannot atone for our own sins. This is why I love some of the older hymns, Isaac Watts, John Newton, people like that. I love Rock of Ages. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Or could we have no rest in our zeal? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the mountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We don't atone for our own sins. We go to Christ to atone for our sins. This is how we respond to this. Number four, we regard Christ as our greatest treasure. This is the most important thing to take from this. Regard Christ as the greatest treasure in your life. Who heard, who's heard of Jim Elliot? Who's heard his famous, famous quote? I'll say it in a moment. Some people say this is an overused quote. I would say it's an underapplied quote. It is used all the time, but no one applies it. This is what he said. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Who's heard, who's heard that before? I've heard it. I've grown up in church. From, I don't remember the time I wasn't in church. I've heard it probably every month of my whole entire life. Okay? It's a great quote, though. So you're not foolish if you give up something you can't keep in order to get something that you'll never be able to lose. That's the wisdom of the statement. And if you didn't know what Jim Elliot did, he went down to Ecuador with some buddies and tried to evangelize a tribe that had never heard the gospel. And they were all speared to death and left dead in the river. He applied this. Christ was his greatest treasure. And it led him to do things of complete self-sacrifice for people who had never heard the gospel. This leads to glad sacrifice. It's not to earn our forgiveness, the sacrifice that we make for Christ. It's not so others can compliment us. It's so others can know that we serve a faithful God. 
so others can know that we serve a faithful God who takes care of us when we sacrifice in this way. When we give up everything, people can look at us and say, you've given up everything and somehow you're still okay. Somehow you're still joyful. This is what this is all about. We are giving up everything, counting everything lost to gain Christ. This is what we should take away from this passage. You don't all have to go to Ecuador, but hopefully some of you will. This is a great passage. I know I didn't do it justice, but please take this passage home. Please take Philippians home with you. Please apply the truth to Philippians. I told you at the very beginning that Philippians is like a fire. It's going to light your feet on fire, and it's going to make you do things that are inexplicable for Christ, things that no wise person, according to the world, would ever even consider. Let's take these things to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you. We love you uh, for what you've done in our lives. We love you because you first loved us. You looked down on us in our pitiful state and all of our attempts to earn our favor with you. And we thought we were doing really well. We thought that we were able to earn our favor with you. We thought we could do it by working really hard and by doing things that could, people could smile on and say that, wow, we're, we're really it. But Lord, it doesn't work that way in your system. Lord, in, in your mind, Christ is the only answer. I pray that we would adopt that way of thinking. I pray that we'd remember that we're bankrupt before Christ, that we have nothing to offer you before Christ, and that in Christ we're wealthy, that we have his justification, that we are declared right in your sight, and that you make us holy day by day, and that one day we're looking forward to the glorification that you offer us, and we live in light of that. I pray that you'd help us to be humble, walk before you as your blood-bought children, and serve others like you served us. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.